Now, Mark chapter 3, and we start in verse 19. We're looking at verse 19 through 33 and getting Jesus right. Or in this case, at least two groups got Jesus wrong, didn't they? And uh, uh, we use the little um, liar, lunatic, or Lord from, from C.S. Lewis. And we, we're looking at the three conclusions. We looked this morning at he's either a deranged lunatic, he's a demon-possessed liar, and that's we, we saw why they said that in the, the declaration of the group that came up from Jerusalem, but we didn't get into Jesus' answer. So we're going to look at that tonight, and then we're also going to look at the last one, which he is, the devoted Son of God, who is Lord, and that's how he answers, answers his, uh, his family. So let's look at this. He's a, he's a demon-possessed liar. And, and I saved this for tonight, not only because the passage is long, um, but you're going to see how it fits in well with what we're doing this evening and bringing new people into, into the family at, uh, at Timberlake. So let's read it, and then we'll get into it. It says, verse 19, And they went into a house, then the multitude came together again, so that he could not so much as eat bread. But when his own people heard about this, he went out and laid, uh, they went out to lay hold of him. And they said, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, he has Beelzebub. And by the ruler of the demons, he casts out demons. So he called them to himself. This is where we'll pick up. And he said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand, or that kingdom will come to an end. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but has an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men, but whatever blasphemies, and whatever blasphemies they may utter, but he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation, because they said he has an unclean spirit. Now, that passage is packed with a lot of interesting things. We said this morning that they made two accusations against Jesus. Number one, Jesus himself was demon-possessed. He has Beelzebub. He's possessed. And the second, because they couldn't deny the miracles, they said he performed the miracles by the power of the prince of demons. So, yes, it happened, but it was evil forces. So, so... They really said the most vile thing that they possibly could about Jesus. He's not the holy Lord of heaven. They, they use the vilest possible slander and blasphemy, and they say the Son of God is nothing more than a servant of Beelzebub. He's a servant of the devil. I mean, you can't really get... He's either the Son of God or he's a servant of Satan. I mean, the two extremes. And Jesus answers their accusation in verse 23. And he answers the second charge first with this parable, and then he, he answers their first charge with what we call the unpardonable sin in verses 28 through, through 30. Jesus says in verse 23, he calls them to themselves, he, he understands what they've said, he calls the delegation to him, and he, he speaks in parabolic terms. Jesus basically says, what you're, if what you're saying is true... 
How can Satan, the ruler of the demons, cast out himself? Look at what he says in verse 23. How can Satan cast out Satan? Jesus is basically saying, your charge doesn't make sense. It's absurd. It's impossible. Because Satan would be attacking himself. If I cast out demons by his power, then Satan would be attacking his own kingdom. Like verse 24, if the kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. It will, it will come to an end. It means it will be over. And Satan is not going to go around, Jesus is saying, he's not going to go around exposing people who are demon-possessed that are sitting secretly in the synagogue doing his evil work. I mean, think about the logic of this. If Jesus really was possessed by an evil spirit and what he did was by the power of Satan, why would, why would a, a minion of Satan go into the synagogue and expose other minions of Satan and cast them out? I mean, the whole point is that they're in there clandestine. Nobody knows that they're demon-possessed. You remember that when we looked at Jesus casting out the demon-possessed man in, in Capernaum? And while they can hide from us, and human beings can't tell, they can't do anything but expose themselves, reveal themselves whenever Jesus comes in, because He is the Lord of glory. So Jesus basically says, that's ridiculous. Satan wants them undercover. And now, He turns to the positive side. Look at, look at verse 27. Not only if what you're saying is true, would Satan be against himself... But in verse 26, or 27, I should say, he says, No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Strong man. Then he will plunder his, his house. So there's the negative reality. It's impossible. And now there's the positive. It's, it's something that, that they also couldn't deny. No one can come in a strong man's house and plunder his property unless he binds the strong man first. I mean, that's, that's obvious. If someone comes into my house, which I would not advise them to do because between me and Bailey, there's probably more guns than, than you can imagine. But I'm not just going to let him come in my house and say, hey, so glad you're here. Take whatever you want, right? But if they come in, knock me in the head, tie me up, then I can't stop them from what they're doing. That's basically what Jesus is saying here. He said, that's obvious, yes, that yes. If you want to go in and get the property of someone, you have to overpower the guy. You've got to be stronger than he is in order to get his property. So Jesus is saying, since I've cast out demons and you've already acknowledged that I did because you attributed the power to Satan... Not only is it ridiculous, because Satan wouldn't be against Satan, but it's, it's only logical that I would then be stronger than him. I mean, if I came into Satan's house and cast out, plundered his work, then I would be stronger than Satan. And then there's only one who's stronger than Satan, and that's God. That's what Jesus is saying. The strong man is Satan. His property are the individuals that are, that are demonically seized. 
and binding the strong man, what Jesus did is what you saw whenever he looked at the, the demon possession in the synagogue. Jesus does what he wants, when he wants, with the devil and with the demons, and they do nothing. It's very clear that Jesus Christ is stronger than the devil. He exposes the demons, he dismisses the demons, he rescues people who have been possessed by the demons. He plundered the strong man's house. Therefore, with their logic, whoever Jesus is, he's stronger than Satan. You follow the logic there? So who is he? Is he a lunatic, like his family said? Is he a liar, like they're saying? Well, there's only one other option. And that's he's God. He's Lord. So look at what he says in verse 28. Now comes the testimony. After he debunks their logic, uses their own logic against them. In verse 28, he says, Assuredly or truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. This is the first time that Mark uses this word assuredly or truly. And you'll, you'll probably are more familiar with verily. You remember Jesus, verily, verily, I say unto thee. It's, it's like saying what is coming is accurate, what is coming is authoritative, and I'm emphasizing it and you better believe it. That's what he's saying. And Jesus here declares to us and to that, that ruling party... By what power he does the works that they are investigating. It was by the power of the, of the Holy Spirit of, of God. Jesus is not possessed by an unclean spirit, but he affirms that he possesses the Holy Spirit of, of God. And he gives them a warning. To reject the revelation of Christ, which they had. Now, now, get it. This is a delegation of investigators, expert scribes from Jerusalem to, to give a commentary, to draw a conclusion about what Jesus has done, his ministry, his message. And they've done that. They've conducted their full investigation. They've talked to the people that would have been demonically possessed, healed. They would have listened to what people said, what the scribes said in the rabbis. This is not just... These individuals have made an investigation and they drew the conclusion that Satan was the fuel for Jesus' ministry and lies were, were, his, were his message. And Jesus says to them to reject the revelation of Christ and the Spirit's witness of that revelation, that He is the Christ, is to damn your own soul. That's basically what He says here. Look at verse 28. All sins will be forgiven the sons of men. But, verse 29, he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. Now, that is a terrifying verse. Because in one sense, there's great encouragement. All sins will be forgiven the sons of men. And whatever blasphemies they utter, blasphemies they utter. Praise God. I have blasphemed the Lord before I knew Christ. I've done things I wish I couldn't even remember. 
much less the Lord knew about. And all my sins are forgiven. Isn't that encouraging? And now it gets scary. But, which is the contrast, but he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. So what is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit that damns someone eternally to where they would never have forgiveness? As a pastor, I've dealt with people that have wondered whether they committed the unpardonable sin, as it's called. Maybe I can never be saved. Maybe my sins can never be forgiven. Is that what he's saying here? Is Obviously, we know the answer to this, but is the Bible contradicting itself? It seems like it is. Of course not. There's, there's a logical answer. All sins shall be forgiven, but you have to place your faith in Christ to be forgiven. Right? And so to reject Him means to have no access to forgiveness. I mean, only forgiveness is found in Christ. It's the only place forgiveness is found. And it's the Holy Spirit who reveals Him. So basically he's saying there's no salvation. All forgiveness is available. Forgiveness for all sins, including blasphemies, whatever you utter. But there's no salvation outside of Christ, and it's the Spirit that witnesses to us. If you reject Christ, who is the way of salvation, and reject the witness of the Holy Spirit that confirms who He is in your heart, and the full revelation of who Christ is, you cannot be forgiven... Because salvation is in Christ and it comes by it comes to you by work of the, of the Spirit. You can lie, verse 28. You can murder. You can commit adultery. You can commit the, the sin of homosexuality. You can do drugs. You can hurt innocent people. You can be a fornicator. You can be a rapist. Whatever sin. And you are not beyond the salvation of Christ. You can be forgiven. But if you reject the full revelation of Christ, and the full understanding of who He is, like this group did, brought to you and confirmed by the wooing of the Holy Spirit, who confirms this truth, then you will die in your sins and you have no salvation. Does that make sense? John 3 says a lot of things. But one thing it says is, He that believes is not condemned. He that believes not is condemned already. Why? Can you finish the verse? Because he has not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. And so sin separates you from God. It brings wrath upon you. The books will be open. All of your sins are evident. So to prove that you have no righteousness, no ability to stand before the Lord... But your unbelief, it is your unbelief that will ultimately be the most damning witness against you in hell. And because Christ is offered freely, that will up the ante even more. And here are those who studied the law, who are supposed to be looking for the Messiah, who were supposed to be the ones that knew, who came and got a full revelation of who Christ is, heard His full message, and then rejected and beyond rejected, blasphemed, saying that he, is an, he has an unclean spirit, attributed what was to God unto the devil, 
and sealed up their own hearts and sealed their fate. But to those who believe, He is the devoted Son of God, who is Lord. Look at verse 31. Then his brothers and his mother came, and standing outside, they sent to him, calling him. And the multitude was sitting around him, and they said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But he answered them, saying, Who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those who sat about him. And he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and mother. Now, this really picks up from verse uh, verse 21. The family comes to seize him. They find the multitude there so much that he can't, can't even eat or sleep. And they come outside the house, and the multitude's in the house, and Jesus is teaching or ministering to them, and, and somebody interrupts it. And Jesus accepts the interruption in order to make a point. Somebody says, hey, your, your mom and brothers are outside, they're looking for you. And Jesus answers, and he says, who is my mother and my brothers? Now, I mean, does this mean Jesus is crazy? I mean, does he, does he not know who his family is? Who are they? Is that what he's saying? Of course not. I mean, he does. In fact, Jesus loves his family into the kingdom. Turn over to Acts chapter 1, verse 14. Acts chapter 1, verse 14. This is the upper room prayer meeting. At verse 12, Acts 1, 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem on a Sabbath day's journey. And they, when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas, the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women, and watch this, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Hallelujah. That's a great verse right there. They went from calling him a lunatic to Lord. Their perspective changed. Jesus' family was part of the first church. They were there on the day of Pentecost. They believed in him after the resurrection. So Jesus is not being unloving toward them. If you turn back to Mark 3, he's not being unloving toward them. He's not showing disdain toward his family. In fact, Jesus commits Mary, his mother, to John from the cross. He's dying on the cross. And he says, John, behold your mother. Mother, behold, behold your son. John, take care of mom after, after I'm, I'm gone. He's not saying that. So what is he saying when he says, who is my mother or my brothers? He's saying as important as my earthly family is, my spiritual family is even greater. He's saying the time for all human relationships has come to an end. The only relationship to me that matters is a spiritual one. It's the priority. 
He's saying, who really has a genuine and lasting relationship with me? And he gives the answer. Who is my mother and brothers? Who has a genuine and lasting relationship with me as Christ? In verse 34, and then he looked around in the circle at those who sat about him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. And who makes up that group? Whoever does the will of God is my brother, my sister, and my and my mothers. Those who embrace Jesus and the will of God are the ones who are his true family and are the ones who are your true family. You've heard the statement, blood is thicker than water? You've probably experienced that in life. I was raised, beat into me. It's a good principle that your family matters. But you know what Jesus says here? Blood is not thicker than the water of baptism. Will the circle be unbroken? Why will the circle not be unbroken? That's what we long. We long for our family to be in, hev- be in heaven with us. But why? I mean, what does that mean? That they come to Christ. And marriage is for earth. It's one of the things that God gave us, just like our bodies are for the earth. It's fit for the earth. It's not to degrade the family. It's to exalt what is even greater in heaven. We'll neither marry nor be given in marriage in in heaven. And Jesus said, if any man will not choose me over, you have to choose. Hopefully you'll never have to choose. And you'll pray for those who are father, mother, brother, sister. But if you have to choose between your blood and the testimony of Christ, you choose God. As painful as that is. And if you won't, then Jesus says, You cannot be my disciple. Those are really, really tough, strong words. The demands of discipleship. Your spiritual family is like father, or is like mother, sister, and brother, is what Jesus says here. And again, don't take this as he disliked his family. He loved them into the kingdom. They were his blood and in his spiritual bloodline after that. Now, what are some practical implications of that? Think of what he says here, the illustration. For here is my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brothers. You are my brothers, you are my sisters, and you are my mother. Now, now, what does family life actually look like? Is it the nice, you know, AARP picture of gray-haired grandma and grandpa there with the little kids and everybody's frolicking, you know, out in the green grass picking daisies and we don't, we have never, never have any problems in our homes. All of our stuff's always perfectly placed on the bookshelves and no dirt and you got the dog and all that. Is that reality? Well, I don't know about your house, but I can promise you it's not reality in my house, is it? I mean, it's, it's, it's hard. It's life. We, we live together. We're sinners. We argue. We fight. We do all those other things that sinners do, just like you do. And that means your spiritual family is going to have some of the same components as your earthly family. It means just like your earthly family fights and offends, so too will the Christian family, but they're still your family, so you work through it. 
Just like you don't cut and run on your blood, you don't cut and run on those who are covered by the blood. You want me to repeat that? That was good. That was good. I agree. And that's why this passage is perfect to end with tonight. Because what are we doing? We're making a covenant commitment to one another as a family. And you bring several new people into the Timberlake family, and they're all current people here, and we're brothers and sisters. And we're brothers and sisters because we do the will of God and believe that Jesus is the Christ. And tonight we're going to have a special time of that commitment. As I said, we'll all stand together and we'll affirm our commitment to one another and our church covenant and... We do that to try to be in, intentional. We believe the Lord desires us to love one another. And um, it's very clear that the Bible doesn't intend the Christian life to be lived alone. And it's also very clear that it's very easy to feel alone and to be alone. John 17.3 said the whole reason that you and I were saved was so that we could know God. John 17.3. This is eternal life. Let me know Him. And Galatians 5.13 tells us that, that the reason that you've been set free from the law is so that you can bind yourself to one another. We're to love God and we're to love others. Hebrews 10.24 and 25 says we attend the service tonight for one another. Forsake not the assembling. You're to consider one another, to provoke and to love and good works. And you can't do that unless you assemble. So you don't forsake the assembling. And you exhort one another. Exhort one another even more and more as you see the wicked day approaching. Or, or I'm sorry, the day approaching because of the wickedness of the day. The return of Christ. Our most basic service to each other as church members is to show up. And I know I've said it a hundred times, but you have encouraged me and you never even knew it. You've discouraged me too and you've never even knew it. I'm sure just like I have you. But you have encouraged me and you never knew it just by seeing you. Um, and it's usually the people that don't get any fanfare that are just serving. They're just doing what they do. And I'm like, man, I want to be like that. And you can't do that unless you show up. You do that for other people, and other people do that, do that for you. It's, your, it's the most basic service to attend regular. You give for one another. 2 Corinthians 8.13 For I don't mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness... Your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need. 1 Corinthians 12 says that we've been given spiritual gifts for one another. The majority of the fruit of the Spirit can't be exhibited in isolation. What do you do? Love yourself? Have peace in yourself? Joy? Kindness and love, they're tough to manifest in isolation. And so this is a special time.